1: When the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year, there was immediate and palpable outrage that spread quickly across the country. And a lot of people thought that that outrage would translate into electoral doom for the political party that had been pushing to end Roe. But instead, after the court's decision, the response from elected Republicans was basically, eh, no big deal.
2: The kind of angry leftists, many of whom are pretty ignorant, don't even know what overturning Roe means, I think a month afterwards are going to be surprised, wait, nothing about my life changed. There's a narrative forming in America that the Republican Party and the pro-life movement is on the run. Mm -hmm. No, 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 no. We're going nowhere. My guess is, in terms of the impact on federal races, I think it's probably going to be a wash
1: did not turn out to be a wash, not even close. In ballot measure after ballot measure across the country, voters came out in support of reproductive choice. In Kansas, in Vermont, in California, in Michigan, in Montana, in Kentucky, literally everywhere abortion rights were on the ballot, abortion rights won. In the 2022 midterm election, Republicans predicted a red wave. But that red wave crested before it could even reach the shore. Supporters of abortion rights turned out in droves to stem that tide. And last night, it happened again. In Ohio, a state Trump won by eight points in 2020. People voted by a margin of 13 points to enshrine abortion rights in their state constitution. In Kentucky, a state that Donald Trump won by 26 points in 2020, Voters chose to reelect Democratic Governor Andy Bashir, who very vocally campaigned on protecting abortion rights in the swing state of Virginia. Republican Governor Glenn Youngkin channeled the hopes of so-called moderate Republicans by campaigning to win Republican control of the state legislature so that he could pass a 15 week abortion ban. A ban he wanted to sell to the American people as the sensible Republicans abortion ban. That plan failed, too. Democrats not only kept control of the Virginia State Senate, they managed to take control of the State House from Republicans by running against Glenn Youngkin's abortion ban. Way to go, Governor. And now, today, conservatives are freaking out about all of this and finally starting to realize that it is not a wash, that people do care, and boy, do they care a lot.
2: Democrats are trying to scare women into thinking Republicans don't want abortion legal under any circumstances.
1: No abortion ban. I mean, I think that's what the voters said. We've seen it in polling for a long time. When we looked at uh, the midterm elections last year, we said instead of a red wave, we saw a red ripple. In large part, I think that was
0: because
3: of abortion. These results, though, do underscore the potency of the abortion rights issue. If the Democrats could run abortion rights against Trump in 2024,
4: they
1: probably do very well
4: indeed.
3: It it does seem like the the Republican Party generally has a real problem with uh, with winning.
1: None of this is lost on Democrats. The ads are being cut, reminding people that the Republican frontrunner in the coming presidential race is the one who made all of this happen in the very first place.
2: I got rid of roe v wade i'm the one that got rid of roe v wade i was able to do it and i was very honored to do it do you You believe in punishment for abortion yes or no as a principle Uh, the answer is that there has to be some form of punishment for the woman yeah there has to be some form there of course remains a vital role for the federal government in protecting unborn life nobody has ever done more for right to life than Donald Trump. Roe v. Wade, they won. They finally won. Uh, The Iowa bill was signed, and they wouldn't have been able to do anything if I wasn't able to do what I did.
1: That is the playbook. Democrats now understand they can run against Donald Trump, and that puts Donald Trump in a very awkward position, because as far as his base is concerned, the reason Republicans keep losing on this is because they haven't been extreme enough.
2: The reality here. Trump delivers MAGA. MAGA delivers victories. This was a this was a turnout issue about MAGA. Don't come here this morning and start whining about abortion. Stand up and do your job. Get in the trenches and fight.
1: Joining me now is Congressman Hakeem Jeffries, House Minority Leader, Leader Jeffries. Thank you so much for being here on this very busy night. Um, I am struck by the ways in which Republicans are in both a state of shock and denial. It has come to my attention that in the last hour, Senator Lindsey Graham says he plans to reintroduce his 15-week abortion ban. Senator J.D. Vance agrees with the introduction of this bill, saying he believes they can get a majority of the American people on board with something. What is your reaction to Senate Republicans who think the answer to last night's problems is to double down on an abortion ban?
4: We're dealing with extreme MAGA Republicans who have one objective, which is to jam their extreme right-wing ideology down the throats of the American people. And fundamentally, what that has meant is that they want a nationwide abortion ban. What the extreme MAGA Republicans want to do is criminalize abortion care. What they want to do is to create a society where women have to live in a place with government mandated pregnancies. And so this issue uh, is one that we'll see them continue to double and triple and quadruple down on because it's fundamentally why many of them are in elected office. We're gonna continue to make clear that we believe in a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decisions and reproductive freedom will certainly be on the ballot next November, just like it was this November.
1: They seem to think, uh, Leader Jeffries, that there's some di- that there's some difference that the American public sees in a ban versus a 15-week what they call limit, or at least that's what Virginia Governor Youngkin calls it. And they, despite the results of last night, they keep hammering down on this notion that the public sees a difference between giving a woman reproductive freedom for an entire pregnancy and just part of the pregnancy. What is your response to that specific strategy?
4: Well abortion care should be a choice between a woman and her doctor, period, full stop. Not these extreme politicians who are trying to jam their ideology uh, into this incredibly important sensitive health care decision that a woman should be able to make. That's what freedom in America is all about. And the American people, as was evidenced in Kentucky, and Ohio, and certainly in Virginia, are not fooled by the Republican efforts to spin what they fundamentally are trying to do, which is to eradicate reproductive freedom in America. As the former president has indicated, that was their agenda, that was their objective, that's why they stacked the Supreme Court, and now they've got to live with the consequences of their extremism being made clear to the American people.
1: I know that you've been fired up about this particular topic. I know that the mood inside the House Democratic Caucus has been, been one of, I would—I don't know, I, I let you characterize it, but it's been a positive day for the Democrats in the House. But I do have to ask you, because there has been some certain amount of hand-wringing among Democrats nationally about President Biden's chances, and I wonder how much you think the results of last night are inextricably linked to President Biden, or whether those results— are more testament to the strength of the Democratic Party platform.
4: Well, President Biden continues to be underestimated and President Biden continues to exceed expectations. He's not just the leader of our country, the leader of the free world, but he's the leader of the Democratic Party. Uh, But yet what we've seen under President Biden's leadership governmentally, is incredible things being done for the American people. We're gonna to have to lean into that. And of course, articulate that we will continue as Democrats led by President Biden to put people over politics. Uh, but also to point out that President Biden will be on the ballot. He supports reproductive freedom, he supports Social Security and Medicare, he supports democracy, he supports building an economy from the middle out and the bottom up, and whoever appears on the ballot on the other side of the aisle is just going to try to jam their extreme ideology down the throats of the American people. There will be a clear contrast, we believe, with President Biden at the top of the ticket, and as he has consistently shown, we will do what is necessary to to win electorally and to continue to deliver results for the American people.
1: I just want to hang on on something you just said. You said we need to lean into the president's accomplishments. What does that practically mean to you?
4: Well, we, of course, uh, have been busy governing in the previous Congress, producing big results for the American people. But we need to talk about what we've been able to do clean water in every single community, infrastructure, gun safety legislation for the first time in 30 years, the Chips and Science Act, which brings domestic manufacturing jobs back home to the United States of America, certainly through the Inflation Reduction Act, dramatic investment in combating the climate crisis and lowering the price of insulin to $35 per month. It's important that we talk about these accomplishments, not to say to the American people, reward us, But we do want to be able to articulate what we've done to say, trust us. We mean what we say, and we say what we mean when we talk about putting people over politics and making life better for everyday Americans. And if you give us the ability to continue to govern, we will build upon these accomplishments to make life better. Uh, for hardworking American taxpayers.
1: Yeah, the operative word there is continue to govern because as you lay out the laundry list, there is a lot of governing that Democrats have done, which brings me to the the cliff that we are all barreling towards the government shutdown in nine days. There are we have a deadline, a hard deadline. You had your first meeting with the new speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, a week ago. Um, How are the discussions going with your colleagues across the aisle? And what's your impression of Speaker Johnson?
4: Well, from the very beginning of this Congress, under prior management and now with Speaker Johnson, we've made clear uh, that we are going to, as Democrats, try to find common ground with our House Republican colleagues whenever and wherever possible uh, in order to improve the quality of life for the American people. However, we're gonna push back against their extremism whenever necessary. And one of the ways in which we've seen their extremism manifest itself throughout this year and in prior years is the Republican attempt to shut the government down or to try to extract these extreme policy proposals that they know they can't otherwise achieve through the normal legislative process. And as has been the case in past years, we are not paying a single extreme Republican ransom note. We're going to defend the American people, and what we need to do is to make sure that we continue to fund the government so the government can provide for the health, the safety, and the economic well-being of the American people. We're willing to have reasonable bipartisan conversations, uh, but we're not going to be subject to any extortion effort uh, that is designed to shake down the American people by threatening us with a government shutdown.
1: Just to get a bit um, in the weeds, does that mean you're not going to vote for anything that's not a clean continuing resolution
4: Well certainly my view is that a continuing resolution should reflect the spending levels at the current fiscal year 2023 Numbers And to the extent we arrive at a year-end spending agreement, that should also be consistent with the Bipartisan Fiscal Responsibility Act. Alex, basically what we're saying to Republicans is that you made an agreement with President Biden, set top-line spending numbers, keep your agreement. Keep your word so that we can do what is necessary for the American people.
1: I mean, you lay, you lay out the facts of what has happened, and yet this House Republican conference is, shall we say, unpredictable. Do you think Speaker Johnson is any good at this?
4: Well, listen, I think that he believes what he believes authentically. Uh, and so far, we've had a very cordial relationship, and I expect that that will continue, hopefully in a positive, forward-looking fashion, to try to solve problems for the American people. But there is a clear blue line in the sand that we will continue to draw in terms of some of their extremism. We're not gonna let them cut Social Security and Medicare. We're not gonna let them undermine reproductive freedom. Uh, we're not gonna let them blow up our democracy. Uh, and we're gonna try to make sure we are building an economy that works for the middle class and all those who aspire to be part of it. And if they're willing to meet us in a bipartisan way in that space, then we can really make some positive changes for the American people.
1: I got to ask you one more question, because we focus a lot on the infighting inside the House Republican conference. But there is there's most certainly been a fracture inside the House Democratic Congress over Israel and uh, Hamas and what is happening in, in Gaza. Um In the 2022 election cycle, you started something called Team Blue Pack to raise money to defend incumbent Democrats against primary challenges. Outside groups are threatening to primary incumbent Democrats who support a ceasefire in Gaza. There are a number of vulnerable incumbents in your in your caucus, Cori Bush, Jamal Bowman, Summer Lee, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib. Are you going to dedicate resources to defending those Democratic incumbents?
4: Many of those individuals uh, are people who I've clearly indicated uh, I'm going to support all of our members from whatever part of the conference uh, or caucus they come from, in terms of their ability to be able to communicate with the people that they represent. That's what House Democratic leadership has traditionally done. That's what House Democratic leadership should continue to do.
1: So that's a yes? Absolutely. House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, on the record, being straight up. We appreciate it, sir. Thank you for your time. I, I Please come back whenever you have the inclination, the energy, and the availability. I really appreciate
4: it. Thank you very much.
1: We have lots more ahead this hour. Protecting abortion rights helped propel a wave of victories for Democrats last night, and the issue is already shaping up to be front and center in 2024. Senator Amy Klobuchar joins me on that later this hour. But first, last night also proved to be a referendum on a slew of other conservative culture war topics. Former White House Press Secretary Robert Gibbs joins me to discuss the lessons for Democrats right after the break. Stay with us. Republicans did not have a good night last night. Not only did voters come out swinging in support of abortion rights, the evening proved to be a referendum on other big ticket conservative priorities. Remember Moms for Liberty, the group that's led the Republican charge on the so-called anti-woke agenda in schools? Well, last night, all four candidates endorsed by Moms for Liberty in one Minnesota district lost to Democrats. In North Carolina, the candidate the group supported in a contested district also lost to a Democrat. In Iowa, 12 of the 13 candidates backed by Moms for Liberty were wiped out. In Pennsylvania, Democrats won against at least 11 candidates aligned with the Moms for Liberty platform. And in Virginia, three Moms for Liberty candidates lost by a lot. So the fairly clear indications that voters are turning away from the book bans and revisionist histories that conservatives have sought to redefine as parental rights movement. Well, it's, yes, fairly clear. And there is more. Last night, Virginia elected the state's first transgender state senator. Ohio voters supported a measure to legalize marijuana. And in Kentucky, a ruby red state, voters elected an abortion-supporting, vaccine-promoting Democratic governor again. As Ronald Brownstein writes in The Atlantic, a clear message from the party's performance yesterday is that Democrats can still win elections by running campaigns that prompt voters to consider what Republicans would do with power. Joining me now is Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary under President Obama. Robert, it's a thrill to have you here today and in person in New York City. Welcome and thank you. First of all, what do you make of of Ron Brownstein's contention that this is really about a repudiation of Republican governance and an affirmation of the Democratic platform?
3: Think about where we were two years ago on election night 2021, watching Glenn Youngkin win the governorship, watching New Jersey almost go red. Uh, And I think what you saw last night was just a pure repudiation of the two years uh, of that type of government, that type of culture war. We see it in the House of Representatives right now. We're talking to Hakeem Jeffries. I mean, for 17 days, the House of Representatives' greatest accomplishment was saying the Pledge of Allegiance because you couldn't even get enough people and enough leadership to rename a post office. You know, so I do think look, you saw it with choice, you see it with democracy, but writ large with extremism, it's just too much. It's been surprising to me that Ron DeSantis has run an entire presidential campaign on things that poll somewhere between 35 and 38%. And that's just not a way uh, to win certainly an election, and it's definitely no way to govern. And I can say I'm happy with some of those results, particularly as the product of, of two librarians.
1: I do need to ask you about a sort of the, the sort of ghost of Christmas future hanging over all of this, which is how this translates to Biden. I mean, there's been a lot. I talked to Leader Jeffries about this momentarily at the end of that first block, but there's real concern on the part of Democrats, looking at Biden's uh, approval numbers and just how voters are, are are rating him on the economy, even his lead on abortion is not as big as you would expect it to be. Do you think there's any question about how Biden sort of, if you will, rides the coattails of the support for democratic policy?
3: Well, look, I, I think, and you, you mentioned this to Leader Jeffries too, I, I think the first thing they have to do is they do have to do a better job of defining what's been done, right? And I think particularly on the economic side, I think the administration's fallen a bit into the trap that we had to be careful of in 2008, 2009, and into 2012. And that is economic statistics can be better, Mm -hmm. and yet people don't feel better off, right? If you're trying to borrow money for a house or a car right now, you don't feel like America is back, right? Right? So, I think there's an economic plank that has to get done. Uh, But I have no doubt that the polling in the electorate will... The polling, I think, will change and the electorate will get focused when the campaign happens. Mm -hmm. The way I would explain... Last night, is, last night was the culmination of a, the 2023 campaign, and we saw the grades when the contrast was put in front of voters. Look at a place like Virginia, very focused on the issue of choice and abortion. I, I think when that happens writ large, particularly in those six swing states that Democrats are rightly nervous about, that when we focus those choices and put them directly in front of voters, whether it's these governance issues, whether it's democracy, whether it's on the economy, then I do think uh, I do think there's definitely a path for President Biden to be reelected.
1: Do you? Um, I kind of think that part of the reason Trump seems less repugnant, if not actually attractive to some voters is because he's basically been muzzled on his most xenophobic, offensive language uh, because he's been focused on his criminal exposure, right? He's been sort of in courtrooms. He hasn't been the sort of unleashed demagogue that he has been in previous years. And yeah. and there might be some sort of, he's getting a mulligan for that almost, you know, people, it, it sounds like, especially when you look at his approval among voters of color, it's sort of, begs the question, how and why could this happen? Do you think that that will change once Trump is back? I mean, he'll be on a you know a lot of courtrooms next year, too. But once he's on the stump in a more pronounced way.
3: Yeah, I definitely think so. I mean, look, uh, you used the mulligan golf analogy. I don't even really know.
1: I mean, I think that was the, ra- I think no, that was the right term.
3: It definitely was. But I also think myself, he's, he's barely campaigning, right? Occasionally campaigning playing a lot more golf, and as you said, visiting a lot more courtrooms and spending a lot of time with lawyers. Uh, I, I most certainly think when people get to see that again, and to see it up close, and to see it, people feel and felt the chaos mm. of every news cycle being something just a little bit crazier. And, and when that merry-go-round stops for a little bit, you sort of forget it was a scary ride. But I think once we get back up on that merry-go-round and it starts to go faster and faster, Space and Mountain,
1: Robert. Let's 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 really the anaconda. I mean, not the merry-go-rounds, a little benign.
3: But I, that is true. But I think once that thing gets sped up, I think people will will get that. They'll see that. And I think that's look. I think the campaigns are going to be campaigns were important last night. This campaign is going to be tremendously important. Putting that choice in front of people, uh, being the president, uh, making those decisions, having to have. Trump talk about what he would be doing. I mean, this was a guy who just a few weeks ago was remarking about how smart Hezbollah was. Right. Uh, I don't. I think if we spend a week more on that, that's not going to age well uh, for somebody like Donald Trump.
1: One more for you, just about the Biden campaign. Um, there is something happening right now that I will not talk about it, but it rhymes with the word. and it's happening in Florida. The Biden campaign is effectively trolling the Republican candidates who are down in the state. Uh, There is a dark Brandon um, branding exercise happening. Um, I feel like it's worth talking about the dark Brandon meme, not just because it's funny, but because it's kind of the Biden campaign's rebuttal to the age question around Biden. Look how experienced he is. Being his age in aviator shades is cool. Make a bumper sticker out of it. Is it effective?
3: I think it's part of it. Look, I, I and I think it's good to have a chip on your shoulder, right? I mm. mean, there's an entire chant created to cover up a, a series of pejoratives about being president. Yeah. It, it, great. And, and to sort of be, you know, a little bit, like I said, chip on your shoulder about taking that from them. Great. You want to call me that? Let's, let's, let's Let's sell some merchandise, right? But look, I think there's no doubt this is going to be, this is an important election and people are going to have important questions about age and experience. And I think the Biden campaign and and President Biden are going to have to show each and every day the vigor and the energy they need. I think if the, if the American people see what they've seen in the last few weeks and, and the, the, the vitality in and the energy from the response at the initial terrorist attacks by Hamas, uh, you know, he looked a, a bit different, right? He had a, he had a, a, a kind of a different energy to him. I have a sense that that energy is going to hit when he's in a campaign as well, because he got into this for big reasons, right? Protecting yeah. the soul of America. Uh, that's, as that, big as it that's, gets. that's as big as it gets. And I think, again, I think when that choice comes and I think when you, Kick into the gear of a campaign. My preference would be let's start having those contrasts now, right? Even, I think we have a pretty good sense that what's happening in Florida tonight is for second place, yeah. right? And we know who the nominees are going to be. The stage is somewhat set. I think we saw this in 2012 because we started it very early with then Governor Romney putting a frame around him, making people understand that his economic vision and President Obama's economic vision were very different. One got us into this mess and one was going to get us out of this mess. And we forced everything through that. And they've got to start doing that as well.
5: Dark
1: Brandon rises. Robert Gibbs, thank you, sir, for your time and wisdom. It's great to see you. Coming up later this hour, Donald Trump likes to say some of the activities he's now criminally indicted for, that he carried them out on the advice of his lawyers. How that argument inside a courtroom exposes him to a new mountain of legal peril. But first, Republicans are saying the quiet part out loud again. More on that next. In 1971, this issue was resolved. We call upon Southern Baptists to work for legislation that will allow the possibility of abortion under such conditions as rape, incest, clear evidence of severe fetal deformity, and carefully ascertained evidence of the likelihood of damage to the emotional, mental, and physical health of the mother. The Southern Baptist Convention, America's largest Protestant denomination, decided to push for legislation to allow abortion in a variety of circumstances, 1971. And they kept that position even after Roe v. Wade established the right to abortions. Because in the early 1970s, the religious right wasn't motivated by abortion. For the pioneers of the evangelical movement, segregation, even after Brown v. Board of Education, segregation was the animating force. But as civil rights gained traction with real, enforceable legislation, segregation became a losing cause. And fighting it would cost conservatives elections. And then this happened.
6: Six years in the U.S. Senate and then out on one issue, the one political insiders said didn't matter. I had voted for public funding of abortion. I'd refused to sponsor a constitutional amendment to support that. And my opponent said that he would. So it was a clear-cut case, one of the poorest in the United States, I think, in the Senate races. The anti-abortion movement has political clout. That
1: surprised a lot of journalists and political analysts who believed those people made a lot of noise, but not much difference. In 1978, the incumbent Democratic senator from Iowa, Dick Clark, the favorite, lost because he wasn't sufficiently anti-abortion. At the time, pro-life activists having that kind of political power was unheard of. And it wasn't just Iowa. In Minnesota that year, pro-life Republicans won two Senate seats. Conservative activists saw what was happening, and they realized that abortion could pull together many of our fringe Christian friends. So that became the plan. Take evangelicals' anger over segregation and transfer that anger to abortion. Republicans fell in line. In 1980, Ronald Reagan campaigned for president on a constitutional amendment prohibiting abortion. It is one of the issues that catapulted Reagan into the White House, and it became a conservative fixation all the way through the presidency of Donald Trump, the man who forged a coalition with the religious right to secure its support and its dollars. The president who nominated three of the justices who helped end Roe last year. That president loves bragging about that particular fact.
2: That I was able to terminate Roe v. Wade after 50 years of trying. They worked for 50 years. I've never seen anything like it. They worked. And I was even I was so honored to have done it. Nobody did a job like I did, including Roe v. Wade, bringing it back to the states.
1: But these days, and after yesterday night especially, campaigning on ending abortion does not appear to be the way to win. In Ohio, and Virginia, and Kentucky, everywhere abortion was on the ballot, voters handed decisive victories to Democrats. Opposition to abortion, that issue that unified right-wing religious groups beginning in the 1970s, turning them into a very powerful political bloc, that issue can now sink political fortunes. As they did in the 1970s when they pivoted from segregation to abortion, the right will need to coalesce around another wedge issue and soon. Because abortion will likely be on the ballot again in several states next year. And that puts Republicans in a real bind. We're going to have more on that with Senator Amy Klobuchar next.
2: You put very sexy things like abortion and marijuana on the ballot. And a lot of young people come out and vote. It, 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 it was a it was a secret sauce for disaster in Ohio. I don't know what they were thinking, yeah. but um, that's why I'm, I, I thank goodness that most of the states in this country don't allow you to put everything on the ballot because right. pure democracies are not the way to run a country. <laughs>
1: so, that was former Republican Senator Rick Santorum saying the quiet part out loud. Democracy is not good for his party. It's going to be really inconvenient for Republicans in 2024 because constitutional amendments to protect abortion access are already on the 2024 ballots in Maryland and New York and ballot initiatives to protect abortion access, to limit it or to ban it altogether. Initiatives that put abortion on the ballot literally, those have already been proposed in Arizona, Colorado, Florida, Iowa, Missouri, Nebraska, Nevada, Pennsylvania, South Dakota and Washington. What a list. Joining me now is Senator Amy Klobuchar, Democrat from the great state of Minnesota. Senator, thank you so much for being Thanks, with us Alex. tonight. Um, I'm, re- I'm very eager to hear your thoughts. I, it feels like we are at the sort of culmination of a long and very hard fought war over what choice means. And I just want to call your attention to some research that was conducted by a group um, that was working for effectively, I believe, Republicans. The term pro-life this group concluded, is perceived as support for a flat ban on abortion without any exceptions, the most restrictive anti-abortion position. By contrast, pro-choice is seen as more middle of the road. That, to me, seems like a really big, 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 big deal, and perhaps explains what happened last night.
5: Sure. I think, you know, once again, the voters of this country in some very red states defied the pundits, they defied all these predictions, and they came out and said, we want to stand up for our own freedoms, whether it's the freedom to vote, but in this case, the freedom for women to make their own decision about their health care and not have it made by a bunch of politicians. That's what last night was about. And you look at those numbers in a state like Ohio and how that bodes, by the way, for my friend uh, Sherrod Brown, um, who is such a champion for workers, a champion um, for people, and um, how he stood up for the freedom to make your own decisions about your health care from the very beginning. And then you go over to Kentucky, uh, where that ad—of um, course, it's Governor Bashir's incredible work and how he's delivered results—but of the 12—the year the girl who, when she was 12 years old, uh, was raped by her stepfather. And she basically looks at the camera so honestly and so painfully in this searing moment and says to— Bashir's Republican opponent, and so you're going to tell me I had no options. You're going to tell me that I'm supposed to be a victim of rape and carry the rapist baby. That's basically what that ad was about. So I think what I, my reaction to all of this is every time this has directly been on the ballot, seven times when reproductive freedom has been on the ballot, the voters, whether it is in Kansas or Ohio or that Supreme Court race in Wisconsin, time and time again, in the middle of the prairie, have made it clear that they stand up for freedom. And the Republicans aren't backing down, Alex. They are doubling down on their position.
1: Yet, to that end, why is Lindsey Graham talking about reintroducing a 15-week abortion ban less than 24 hours after his own party effectively has been handed its lunch on that thing? <laughs>
5: You just see this time and time again. Um, National bans, you see them talking about criminalizing doctors, certain candidates in certain states introducing laws to do such a thing. You have medical professionals saying, we don't know what to do anymore. Uh, You had that horrible case of that young girl, a victim of incest, who had to go to another state. People are watching this. They understand what's going on here, so I am um, very committed. Um, to the fact that our party, the Democratic Party, is—yes, stands up for freedoms, but there's something else about last night that we haven't covered as much uh, in the last 24 hours, and that is that it was about delivering results. You look at what Bashir talked about in his own campaign, it was a lot about infrastructure. If you're trying to extrapolate this into the next election in the presidential year, yes, it's about standing up for freedoms, but it's also about delivering results. My favorite example is there's a county in eastern Kentucky that Governor Bashir himself had lost by eight points in the last election. He worked on a federal project there on a roadway. Um, and he was able to get that project and deliver for that county. And he went up, got a 12-point swing, and won it by four. And it's a local project you probably haven't heard of, Alex, probably haven't talked about it on, on your program, but it is an example of what's been happening. And Democrats are going to be able to show, with the bipartisan infrastructure law, with the Inflation Reduction Act that we delivered, and also on prescription drug prices, um, people want to hear about that. They don't want to hear about losing their freedoms. They don't want to hear about suppressing the vote or banning books. I think Danica Rome probably said it best in her race in Virginia, uh, when she won against all odds, the first trans um, member elected in the House of Delegates in the Commonwealth of Virginia. And when she won last night in her victory speech—I don't know if you saw it—but she said— The voters have shown they want a leader who will prioritize fixing roads, feeding kids, and protecting our land, instead of stigmatizing trans kids or taking away our civil rights. That's what last night was about.
1: Do you at all worry about the fact that abortion is—it's proved to be such a powerful attractant uh, to get people to the polls, and yet it's clear that the economy and those basic sort of infrastructure, bread and butter, connecting the dots in terms of policy and legislation, it's hard to do both of those things, to talk about the existential threat to freedom, but also to talk specifically and 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 in a detailed fashion about legislative accomplishments,
5: you know, I think you could do two things at once, and Governor Bashir proved that last night. As did a number of our governors and the members of Congress, the U.S. Senate that won in that last midterms. Those are the polls that count, and the fact that we have this list of deliverables. Right, we're living a results-oriented business, and. President Biden and Democrats have been delivering results. People care about the fact that the drugs— uh, that Medicare was unable to negotiate because it was handcuffed by a sweetheart deal that the pharma companies had written into law 20 years ago. Now, finally, we're starting to negotiate less expensive drugs for drugs like Zorelto and Eliquis and um, Jardin. It's unbelievable. Last year, nine million seniors spent over $3.4 billion in out-of-pocket costs just on those drugs. Those are real things, Alex. So, I think, yes, you talk about fundamental freedoms, you have a party that, instead of changing its policies on the Republican side, instead of changing its candidates, is doubling down. Um, and then you've got the deliverables. And that was the message. And they, they keep saying, well, we message wrong. Well, you can't—I <laughs> say to my Republican colleagues, there's only so much you can do with a, a TV ad. There's only yeah. so much you can do on messaging if your policies are off where the people of this country are.
1: Well, that's what we have been seeing as the election results rolled in. Minnesota Senator Amy Klobuchar, it's great to see you. Thank you for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. Great to be. When we come back, Ivanka Trump took her turn on the witness stand today while her father's attempt to slow down one of his criminal cases. It's sort of a snag. That's next. Today, the federal judge in D.C. who's presiding over Trump's January 6th case set a deadline for Trump to make a choice about whether he is going to use what is called an advice of counsel defense. Joining me now to discuss is Joyce Vance, former U.S. attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Joyce, he's said all along the lawyers made him do it. But what are the risks for Trump in using an advice of counsel defense here?
6: Right. So we saw those risks today when the judge entered an order that on January 15th, Trump has to give notice of whether he wants to use the defense. And that notice means he's waiving his attorney-client privilege in these communications. He has to turn all of them over to the government, any other evidence he wants to use to establish the defense. And he even has to give the government access to communications that he doesn't intend to um, use at trial, but that might have bearing on the defense. In other words, if he has emails where he ignored advice from White House counsel or
1: others, he has to turn all of it over. Given what we've seen thus far from his correspondence with his lawyers, that could be deeply problematic. And I wonder how much it matters that three of his lawyers, Ken Chesbrough, Sidney Powell and Jenna Ellis, have all pleaded guilty in Georgia to uh, state criminal charges. How much does that matter in all this?
6: Right, so it really does, especially for the ones who, unlike um, Jenna Ellis, but Kenneth Chesbrough is an unnamed, unindicted co-conspirator in D.C., you cannot rely on advice from lawyers if they happen to be your partners in crime. So all sorts of implications here. And at bottom, for Trump to make out the defense, it's tough to figure out how he'll prove it other than by taking the witness stand himself. So we may not see him move forward with this defense at the end of the day.
1: And Just practically speaking, January 15th is a deadline. Is that a sufficient amount of time to prepare a defense, given what he may claim?
6: Well, it's a smart date because Trump agreed to that date in earlier filings with the judge. So she, in essence, avoided any problems on appeal. Look, it gives the government a couple of months. They see this one coming from far away. And to the extent that Trump uh, wants to rely on John Eastman's advice about creating fake slates of electors and telling Mike Pence to delay certification, government is already, I am quite confident, ready to deal with that.
1: Oh, Joyce, you know, there's so much to unpack. We have to leave it there, my friend. Thank you for closing this out uh, with some interesting ideas about what Trump might do once, once he actually gets to a, the January 6th trial. That is our show for the evening.
0: The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories.